2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. The topic, the Apostle Paul describes all of our present sufferings as a light affliction that results in a future weight of glory. So the title of our message is The Lightweight Champions of the World. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do want to come before you in prayer, uh, humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves to you and to your word. Pray that the Holy Spirit, who is in this place, inhabiting the praises of your people, uh, and in our hearts, Lord, those of us who are believers, that he would be our teacher, that you would speak to us between the soul and the spirit in that deep place that only you can reach. Take this text, Lord, and encourage us. It's meant for encouragement. It was written centuries ago for a time such as today. Bring it to our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And those who agreed said, amen. A bride and groom planning their wedding chose as their Bible verse, 1 John 4.18, which reads, there is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. They decided to have it written in its entirety on their wedding cake. Everything was going good until the reception when they walked in to find the cake decorated not with 1 John 4.18, but with John 4.18, which reads, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. I have doubts that story is true. That sounds like a made-up pulpit story, but it does serve as a good illustration. When you share God's word, you want to get it right. You should be looking for a text that in its context really speaks to the situation, hopefully one that has been brought to your attention by the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is nowhere more essential than when you are sharing with someone who is suffering. It would be better to share nothing rather than to share the wrong something. For us as a body of believers, 2018 was undeniably a year of intense suffering for many of our members. I'm not going to reference anyone in particular, but if you're on the prayer network, all you need to do is read down the list to see the discouragements, the diagnoses, and the deaths. At times, and I'm not exaggerating, the suffering seemed almost Job-like in that one tragedy followed another and another and another in rapid succession. Now, we're all members of one body, and that means, and I quote, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Is there an appropriate text in its context that can comfort all of us? Well, there is, and you found it in 2 Corinthians 4. Here's a sampling to show you its appropriateness for us. Beginning in verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. And then the author, who is Paul the Apostle, brings it home in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. In 2018, we were hard-pressed, we were perplexed, we were persecuted, we were struck down. We want to claim and experience the promise of not losing heart. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, if you realize you're dying, you will not lose heart. And number two, if you remember your destiny, you will not lose heart. Let's take a look at dying in verses 7 through 15. There's a big push towards human immortality. What was once strictly the stuff of sci-fi is within our reach. 
One recent article, and it was in a serious publication. You, you understand you have to be careful what you read on the internet, don't you? People send me stuff sometimes, and they say, look at what's going on, and then I, I see the, the site. It, it's some crazy as a loon guy, you know, that is making stuff up. Loons, I think, had a bad reputation. But anyway, <laughs> it was on a, a pretty serious site, and they suggested at least these three ways you might achieve immortality in the near future. Now, you're going to think of science fiction movies that these came out of, but this is real science now that they're working on. Number one, by putting your consciousness into an android body. Number two, by replacing your organs as they fail with replicas that can be created by 3D printers. Or by living for real in a kind of cloud matrix. And so these are all uh, within the realm of possibility, not centuries away, not even decades away. Because one researcher boldly predicted that with these advances in technology, anyone currently under 40 years of age, anybody here under 40? He says you will never need to die of natural causes because they'll be able to do something with your mind and your consciousness uh, and you can go on, they say forever or immortally, but you get the idea. As per usual, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. While non-believers try to extend human life on earth indefinitely, God urges us to realize and embrace that we are dying. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so verse 7, we have treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Your treasure is your knowledge of and your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's everything that is yours if you are in Christ. Everything you once lacked in your natural birth that has come to you in your spiritual birth. What on earth could be more precious, more valuable, or more necessary, or more sustaining than to think about what God has done in saving you and his promise to ultimately save you and bring you to heaven? Paul's point here, though, is that this side of eternity, you are as fragile as an earthen vessel. It translates to jars of clay. You might say that we're a bunch of cracked pots, <laughs> pun intended. Such containers are easily broken through daily wear and tear. As remarkable as the human body is, it is easily broken. And by body, I'm including your mind and your emotions. They, too, are frail. A neuropsychologist wrote, and he said, bodies get ill, they age and die. Milk spills, glasses break, people mistreat you, good feelings fade. One sense of calm or worth is easily disturbed. A life is like a house of cards, and a single gust, a layoff at work, an injury, a misjudgment, can knock it all over. For us, 2018 wasn't hypothetical like that. The suffering was real, and it was intense. It's helpful to realize from the outset that we are frail in our current condition, Suffering is not unusual, it is in fact normal for human beings. Uh, I think we, especially here in the United States, where, hey, I'm happy to live here, don't get me wrong, I don't want to live anywhere else, uh, but uh, we sort of think that we don't need to get sick and die, that there's always going to be a pill or a procedure or something's going to intervene uh, and that everything's going to be all right. Uh, and you know what? You're dying. I don't, I don't know if you realized that this morning. You probably didn't think too much about it when you looked in the mirror and combed your hair. Uh, but we're all dying. What sets us apart from non-believers 
is that we reveal the excellency of the power of God working in us. One poet put it like this. This is the best commentary I could find on what this means. He wrote, earthen vessels marred unsightly, bearing wealth no thought can know. Heavenly treasure gleaming brightly, Christ revealed in saints below. Vessels broken, frail, yet bearing through the hungry ages on. Riches given with hand unsparing, God's great gift, his precious son. And so throughout this morning, we'll talk about this comparison between our frailty and God's uh, power. And, and so we have this treasure, this knowledge of eternal life, this future destiny in these frail bodies of ours. Verse eight, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So there are four things you can absolutely count on being hard-pressed on every side. This phrasing could describe grapes being pressed. You can count on it, but you're simultaneously promised you won't be crushed by it. You can count on being perplexed. This means confused with no clear understanding of your path, but you are simultaneously promised you need not despair. You can count on being persecuted. Now, we probably experience this the least, but any action against you for simply being in Christ is persecution, but you are simultaneously promised you will not be forsaken. You can count on being struck down, which can have any number of applications, including losing the battle, but you are simultaneously promised you will not be destroyed. Again, I'd stress that prior knowledge is a key. You will be hard-pressed. You will be perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. These are not maybes, they're not unusual experience. Paul is saying, this is what's going to happen to you in this current world and our current bodies. They're unavoidable given the current condition of creation. But when you are, you can know you aren't being crushed or driven to despair or forsaken or destroyed. These are also promises and they are promises that you will be sustained in the worst of sufferings. In each case, the suffering is very, very real, but it cannot affect your treasure. And though it feels like you can't take it, you are promised that you can. You're going to be struck down at some point in your journey to heaven, for example, but no matter its severity, you are not and you cannot be destroyed because as we will see in a moment, the real you is spiritual. It's the inward man, the inward woman that is being renewed day by day and is on its way to heaven. So how do we appropriate these promises? Well, verse 10 says, we always carry about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Paul referred three times to dying. He also reminded us that even Jesus died as far as his physical body. Paul never knew if he would make it through another day. One author wrote, Paul knew that he was dying and that everybody is. He experienced tremendous suffering, and in that he saw the decay and the wasting away of his earthly life. There were weaknesses and sicknesses and injuries and hardships and pressures and frustrations and disappointments, and every one of them cost him a piece of his life. We need to realize that death permeates creation on account of sin. Dying is a way of life, not just physical death, 
We must deal with the death of dreams and hopes and plans as suffering dramatically alters each of them as well. While suffering understandably troubles us, it should be expected. It's why Jesus came and died. He came to overcome sin and death, reversing the curse upon this planet and this universe. Now, Paul also mentions life three times to balance out. He said the life of Jesus is shown to others through us in our suffering. Our frailties are the backdrop for people to see the power of life in Jesus Christ. The treasure has to be revealed, and if it's encased in jars of clay, they have to be broken in order for people to see what is really at the core, what's really at the center. And you all know this, you've been a Christian for any length of time. People see the real you when you are suffering because all that you uh, have you know, is stripped away and all you're left with is you and Jesus. It is shown to be excellent in and through our enduring suffering in the strength of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And so verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. I believed and therefore I spoke is part of Psalm 116 verse 10. It's a quote. The entire verse reads, I believed, therefore I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Uh, This was cute to me. I think God gave this to Paul in his suffering as a verse to encourage him the way we're talking about this morning, finding scripture to encourage you. And so Paul, in the enormous amount of suffering he went through, God at this one point gave him Psalm 116 verse 10, which in which the psalmist uh, prays for deliverance, believing it could come in this life, but knowing it will come in the afterlife. And so it was a great encouragement to Paul. Maybe you've had the experience in some trial or tribulation or suffering or affliction, everything, you you were confused and perplexed or struck down, whatever it was, and then the Lord brought you to an area of Scripture, maybe an entire story or just a verse or just part of a verse. And all of a sudden, your heart was strangely affected by it because he was speaking directly to you. And it didn't change the situation, but it changed your perspective on it because you knew everything was going to be all right eventually and ultimately uh, because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope you've had that experience. If not, seek it in your suffering and it will be a tremendous help. As an aside, I didn't want to get off on this rabbit trail, but I think I will. I'm on the internet a lot doing research and studying. Really, I don't do any games. Uh, Anyway, uh, and, and there's a, it's, Christians, Christians are just weird, all right? We're weird. And we always want to one-up each other and correct each other and do stuff like that. And so there's a, a push right now. Uh, there's a bunch of people writing blog pieces and articles about how we take verses out of context and apply them to ourselves and how we're a bunch of losers for doing that. Uh, you know, the, the verse, in, they always go to the one in Jeremiah that says, I know the plans I have for you, plans of good and to give you a future and a hope and all that. You probably have that in your house somewhere. Somebody probably gives that to you every time you're going through a suffering. Well, so these guys want to point out how, well, you, but you're not the nation of Israel going through 70 years of exile, so you can't claim that verse. Then you feel terrible, right? I gave that verse to a friend of mine to comfort them and now I'm a heretic or something, you know? <laughs> But you know what, number one, these guys in the Bible, they used verses like that. And number two, that's just stupid. Uh, Of course you understand the context, but there's a bigger context. Yes, it's to the children of Israel as as they're coming out of the Babylonian exile, but it's uh, it's a promise that comes from God's nature. 
God says, you're my people and I'm gonna give you a future. Isn't that true? Is that true of us as the church? We're God's chosen people as well. And doesn't he promise us a future and a hope that's even better than the future and the hope he was promising the Israelites? And so don't read that stuff. Just, you know, delete those guys. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that they're all wrong, but I I hate it. People look at Christians and they see an opportunity to rebuke people all the time and make them feel lame. And uh, don't, don't be about that. And so Paul gets this great verse from the Psalms and it encourages him the way we are looking at 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter four. Now, what I'm about to say, I do not want to be misunderstood. I don't want to undermine anyone who is suffering. God absolutely can and he does deliver and heal. And so we pray for healing and we pray for deliverance. We must nonetheless admit that God doesn't heal or deliver as often as we ask. In fact, most of the time, the people we pray for fervently remain sick and they die. It's not from a lack of faith on anyone's part. It isn't the person who's sick. It isn't the people who are praying. It is the nature of the dispensation in which we live. Now, this is important. Paul has already said we carry about the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus. We just got through Colossians, studying Colossians, and he wrote something similar when he said, we fill up in our flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Here's what those verses tell us about the church age in which we live. And by the church age, I mean the time from the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given to the church until the resurrection and the rapture of the church. In this age, Jesus is in heaven, but we remain on the earth and we are his body. And in that sense, it's as if he never left. It's as if Jesus is still on the earth represented through us. Men still afflict him through us. And in that way, we are carrying about his dying and filling up or completing his afflictions. The church age is an era. It's a dispensation when God can and does heal, when he can and does deliver, but most often he does not. He is glorified instead as we carry his dying and fill up his afflictions. Now, you can disagree with me, but it's true. It's true biblically, but it's also true in your experience. All of you prayed fervently last year and in previous years and are still praying for people who are sick, and they're going to die. They don't need to die. God could heal them, but he's choosing not to most of the time, and that's, that's just the truth. And it's a truth that bears itself out in scripture because that's the age in which we live. The millennial kingdom, that's gonna be a lot different. Nobody's gonna need to die. There won't be any diseases. We'll be there ruling and reigning with Christ. Different situation altogether. But we live in this church age between the first coming of Christ and the coming of Christ to rapture the church. And it is characterized by suffering that reveals the excellence of the power of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It takes incredible faith to say, not my will, but your will be done. And so we preface all of our praying with that. Pray for healing until God tells you to stop. God can heal, he does heal. Uh, Pray for deliverance. But at the same time, realistically, we understand that God uh, most often takes his dear children home. Now, verse 14, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Now we're getting to it. We have something to look forward to, something that cancels out every tear we've shed prior to it. 
The resurrection of Jesus in his glorified human body guarantees that every one of us in Christ will likewise be raised and be in reunion with those who have preceded us. All the believers of the church age in which we so suffer will one day be presented personally to our Father in heaven. Does it sound like Paul had given up hope in being raptured and knew he would be martyred and was instead looking forward to being resurrected? You're going to encounter this at some point as an argument. People are going to say, hey, Paul says this over here, bring me my coat because I know my time is short. He knew he was going to be martyred and so he'd given up any thought of the rapture or he never really taught there was an imminent rapture. And for a minute that seems to make sense, but it doesn't make any sense at all because the rapture is always imminent but unpredictable. And, you know, because Jesus said he could come at any minute, it doesn't mean you quit doing everything. This was a problem at the Thessalonian church. Paul had taught them about the rapture, and apparently he taught them it could be at any minute because some of them quit their jobs. And they thought, well, we're just, if the Lord's coming any minute, then we'll just, you know, why go to work tomorrow? Well, it became a problem for the church because these guys weren't working, and some people were, and they were freeloading off of them. And so Paul wrote and he said, hey, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so that solved that problem. And so Paul absolutely believed the rapture was imminent, but he also understood it was unpredictable and you went on making plans. I've been saying, ready or not, Jesus is coming since 1979. But I still have plans to have dinner tonight because I'm gonna eat because the rapture is unpredictable. I believe strongly in my heart that it could happen at any moment, but... It may not. And so uh, don't, don't be uh, fooled into thinking that Paul didn't teach the imminent rapture. Verse 15, all things are for your sake, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. These words encourage us to endure suffering on account of four things that they point out. First, we endure for the good of others. In Paul's case, we see immediate effects of his suffering as he continued to preach the gospel and win converts to Jesus. In our case, we need to take God's word for it, that in our suffering we have a positive effect on others. The effect we have is sometimes intangible. We don't see the immediate results of maybe people getting saved, uh, but I believe God. I believe God to save me, and so if he says that my suffering uh, shows people something about his love and his grace and his mercy, I believe that. Second, we endure by the sustaining grace of God. Paul himself reported elsewhere that he had prayed about what he called a thorn in his flesh. He called it the messenger of Satan. God refused to heal him from the thorn or to deliver him from the messenger, but instead promised Paul that his sustaining grace would be sufficient for him. So if God refuses to deliver or heal, then his grace is sufficient. It's abundant for you to endure. And then third, we endure because our trust in the Lord inspires others to thanksgiving. When God brings beauty out of ashes and triumph in spite of tragedy, it inspires the giving of thanks. Fourth, we endure to bring God glory. If our purpose in life is to glorify God, and if he can be glorified through suffering, then so be it. In one of the situations that we as a church body endured in 2018, one that ended in death, I kept being drawn to Jeremiah 17, 14, which reads, heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are the one I praise. And I started to think how that's really kind of a two-phased promise. Uh, God could heal you on earth, or he could save you and bring you to heaven. 
And so if God chose to heal, he would be the one we praised, obviously. But since God chose to save, meaning to bring his son home to heaven to complete his salvation, he is still the one we praised. Now these verses, verses 16 through 18, if you remember your destiny, you will not lose heart. Nobody here this morning wants to lose heart. None of you came in here saying, I sure hope we sing some songs and hear a Bible study that helps me to lose heart. I want to go out into the world really depressed. Nobody wants that. In the midst of such intense pain and suffering, though, how can we not lose heart? Well, verse 16, it's amazing to me. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. I think it was Dr. J. Vernon McGee who I first heard say, know what the therefore is there for. Have you heard that before from pulpits all over America? Every pastor has to say that at least once a year to keep his minister's license. <laughs> My pastor in San Bernardino used every time there was a therefore, he asked us what was it there for. And uh, it was just something guys do. But it's a, it's a good point. This therefore means that what Paul has just said to us, what we've just read and commented on, is a reason to not lose heart. Even though he promises various sufferings and afflictions, he also promises life and the revealing of the power of God. He says, if you understand all of that, you won't lose heart. Again, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. The world says the kind of suffering Paul described is precisely reason to lose heart. And the word says the kind of suffering Paul described is precisely why you do not lose heart. So verse 16, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Paul never lost sight that his outward man, his earthly body, was wasting away. The more it did, the more it magnified and amplified that the inward man is constantly being renewed. The more broken the vessel, the more the treasure is revealed. Paul never lost sight of that. The inward man, that's the real you. It's your soul and your spirit, that part of you that will be resurrected or raptured in an eternal glorified body at the coming of the Lord. Paul was telling us that the more you see your outward man perishing, the more precious the predestined future of your inward man. For our light affliction, he says, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, there are people in our body that might be offended at having their affliction called light. I avoid using this scripture first thing. You know, somebody tells you they have some terminal situation or some terrible trial, you don't want to immediately say, well, your affliction is light. Have a nice day. I mean, you have to, Paul, it, it, Paul's taken several verses to get to this point. But here, he can say it because he said it. A little later in this letter, he describes a few of his light afflictions. He says, this is 2 Corinthians 11, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. By stripes, he means lashings, like Jesus received before his crucifixion, 39 lashes across the back. Uh, And he said at that point in his career, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and in thirst, in fastings often, in cold, in nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern 
for all the churches. And so Paul is a guy that can say this. He can come up to anyone and say, your affliction is light. At least that's the perspective that we're going to take on it. That's what I take on mine. And he, so we would say he was definitely a lightweight as we are using the term. He considered any and all pain and suffering insignificant when weighed against the glory of eternity. He gave glory more weight. Someone put it this way, compared to the glory coming, afflictions are like feathers on the scale. They can't compete. Verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are seen, or not seen rather, are eternal. And so this is telling us to not do something, but to do something else. Don't look at the things which are seen. This is the material world in which, as strangers and pilgrims, we're merely passing through. Do look at the things which are not seen. That is the spiritual. Everything laid out about us and for us in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Albert Barnes expands on the kind of looking Paul had in mind. He says, look at the things which are unseen. Anticipate the glories of the heavenly world. Fix the eye on the eternal happiness which is beyond the grave. Reflect how short these trials are compared with the eternal glories of heaven and how short they will seem to be when we are there. Our age is characterized by suffering and the Bible doesn't shy away from it. The apostles were honest about it. Jesus was honest about it. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Lord dictated letters to seven churches. Only one church received no criticism from him. It's the church in Smyrna. It has been rightfully called the suffering church. Now you gather for church, maybe Sunday night or Sunday morning, I don't know when they met in Smyrna, and your pastor comes in and he says, I have a letter that was dictated to John the Apostle from Jesus Christ. Wow. This is like better than any book signing that you've ever been to. I mean, this is, this is the real deal. And so you settle in and everybody gets quiet. This is a special Sunday. And then as he's reading it, you get to verse 10. This is Jesus talking to this church. And he says, don't fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil, you remember him, he's about to throw some of you into prison, that you're going to be tested. You guys are going to have tribulation 10 days. I don't know if that was 10 days or 10 years or 10 decades. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Dismissed. <laughs> That's some message. That's crazy, right? I mean, you don't get that in most churches. That's what Jesus said. He said, you guys, you're headed into a time of suffering. He, and he let them know. Because knowledge, I, I don't like this phrase, knowledge is power, but knowledge helps you to understand what's going on. And we're in a time like that, the church age. I feel a little bit like the pastor at Smyrna must have, pointing out how you can expect afflictions. Uh, and, and yet, you know, somebody's got to tell you because these are the kind of promises that people don't normally claim. But the Lord is honest and we want to be honest as well. And, but you know what? The suffering isn't the takeaway. The takeaway is to be a lightweight like Paul and myriads of saints who have gone before you. We are naturally heavyweights. We consider our suffering heavy and we put greater weight on the material present rather than our spiritual destiny. Get out of the heavyweight division. That's our, our goal. It's not easy, and it's not you know, something that you can just snap your fingers, but 
you know, you get exposed to God's word and you believe that his word is his enabling and God's saying, quit being a heavyweight and set your affection on things above and have a more lightweight attitude. Your affliction is light, but it doesn't mean it won't hurt. It doesn't mean you won't cry rivers of tears. It doesn't mean everything is going to be all right or any of those platitudes. It means that in spite of it, and in large measure on account of it, you are being renewed day by day until the day Jesus completes his work in you. Remember, you are a work in progress. And we live in an age where he makes progress in us by allowing us to be afflicted and suffer. Maybe some of you are here saying, why, why all this suffering in the first place? Why doesn't God, you know, if Jesus finished the work on the cross, why doesn't God just end this? He's going to. But I've told you many times, and most of you know the answer to this already, God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all come to eternal life. And so there's, a, there's just a bunch of non-believers out in the world. You know that. You work with them. They live next to you. They're everywhere. Uh, they're non-believers, and they're headed for a Christless eternity, uh, separation from God and an eternal second death, and it's terrible. And so the Lord says, I'm waiting, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait and wait and wait as long as I feel it's necessary to bring more people into the kingdom of God. Some of you have only been Christians maybe four or five years. What if the Lord had raptured the church six years ago? You'd be in the tribulation right now and you wouldn't be faring very well. And, and so that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with. Believe me, the Lord's coming. He's gonna rapture and resurrect the church and then when he does, this thing's gonna get serious. There's a seven-year tribulation sometimes after that in which God is going to solve the problem of suffering once and for all. And so God is long-suffering. We live in a time when we are suffering to show the long-suffering of God. And we want to be lightweights. Tell yourself, tell one another, do not lose heart. 